0: this week on The Bioneers.
1: I've had the honor and privilege of working with Amazon peoples for over three decades. I'm here to tell you these people know these forests and these healing substances far better than we do and far better than we ever will. But the wonder drugs of tomorrow are being turned into a wasteland today. Our organization, the Amazon Conservation Team now, has partnered with 35 tribes to map, manage, and improve the protection of 80 million acres of ancestral rainforest.
0: We hear from ethnobotanist Mark Plotkin on his work with the people of the Amazon protecting biodiversity and age-old wisdom, this week on Bioneers Radio. Support for the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is provided in part by Organic Valley Family of Farms, and by the generous support of listeners like you. In many indigenous languages, there's no word for nature. Why? Because indigenous peoples see themselves as a part of nature rather than a part from it. When the visionary naturalist and environmental philosopher John Muir began his lifelong advocacy for preserving wilderness... Nature inspired him for its spiritual and transcendental qualities. Although he recognized its utilitarian value, he spent his life advocating for its intrinsic value, the sacredness of the tree of life itself. But in Muir's Western worldview, a wilderness meant a place without people. So when he succeeded in helping create the first national parks, it resulted in banishing the native peoples living there. Over time, The land suffered for it. What Muir saw as a wilderness was actually a vast cultivated and co-evolutionary landscape, consciously and superbly managed by the indigenous peoples living there. They were deliberately affecting the health and well-being of the greater web of life, and in turn enhancing their own transgenerational place within it. Today, as we hurtle into the sixth age of extinctions, the first caused by the human hand, we face the cataclysmic loss of half the world's biological diversity. And 80% of the remaining biodiversity is on indigenous lands. It's not a coincidence. From Standing Rock to the Amazonian jungles, indigenous peoples worldwide today are standing on behalf of nature and science, putting their bodies on the line to protect the land and the web of life on which all our lives depend. The traditional knowledge they hold is key to the future, and they're finding modern means to sustain it. In this program, we hear from ethnobotanist and indigenous rights advocate Mark Plotkin of the Amazon Conservation Team about how scientists are helping protect the people who will protect the land and the age-old wisdom that's imperative for our future. This is Shamans and Scientists, Changing the Landscape of Power with Mark Plotkin. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature.
1: So let me take you to the northeast Amazon, where I've been working for many decades, to the country of Suriname, formerly known as Dutch Guiana, one of the most pristine rainforest countries in the world, and to the village of Pwamalasamutu, which is the indigenous capital of the northeast Amazon.
0: As an ethnobotanist, Mark Plotkin has long explored the relationship between people and plants. Early on, he began studying and working with native peoples of the Amazon. He co-founded the nonprofit Amazon Conservation Team, ACT, to help conserve the vital and threatened South American rainforests. As he began to understand the intimate interdependence of people and place, he developed a biocultural conservation strategy that has led to astonishing successes by merging nature, culture, and high technology. It starts and ends with the land and the rivers and the forest. Mark Plotkin spoke at a Bioneers conference.
1: The trio Indians came to my organization, the Amazon Conservation Team, and said, we want title to our lands, and we went to the government, and they said, where's your map? And we didn't know what a map was. So now we know, and we want the Amazon Conservation Team to help us, and I said, we will help you. And they said, so you'll make a map for us? And I said, no, and they said, but we thought you said you were gonna help us. And I said, we will help you, and they said, so you'll make a map, and I said, no, we won't make a map. You'll make the map. We train them to map their own lands. Thanks to our partnership with Digital Globe, these Indians have access to the best aerial photography and imagery on the planet. A single pixel used to be 30 meters across. Today, it's 30 centimeters. We went from a third of a football field to a banana leaf. This gives the Indians the upper hand in dealing with the outside world on their
0: own terms. Plotkin and ACT also work with the Kogi people, who live in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta of Colombia. It's the world's highest coastal range and perhaps the most important protected area in northwestern South America. The Kogi are direct descendants of an ancient civilization that views the mountain range as a living being, and their people as guardians responsible for nurturing and protecting this rich ecosystem that's also a key regulator of the global climate.
1: These are the most traditional people I have ever met. These are the people who came down from their mountain fastness This is a Kogi village. If you went there 5,000 years ago, it would look exactly the same. 25 years ago, they came down from their glaciers and said, hey, what are you little brothers doing down there? Our glaciers are melting. And everybody said, ha, 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 look at those funny little white hats. Well, we didn't listen. We ignored the canaries in the coal mine talking about climate change. And using these types of Google flyovers we can put the power of technology in their hands. This mountain is the ultimate rain and water source in northwestern South America. All of the major rivers come out of there, and the Kogis protect these forests, protect these glaciers, and go down to the ocean, the source of all life in their cosmology, to protect their sacred sites.
0: The Kogi partnered with ACT and the Colombian Ministry of Culture to purchase an area of coastal land that was once part of their ancestral territories. It's home to a chain of 54 of their sacred sites. They'd lost much of the land to colonization, violence, civil conflict, and pollution. Now the land is being restored. The local flora is recovering. A sustainable water system supplies drinking water as well as irrigation for small-scale agriculture, crayfish and crab populations. And the Kogi have revived their traditional practices at the temple site, in part by adding technology to the mix.
1: And they're always making pilgrimage from the sea to the mountaintop to provide offerings to the gods, to make it down to the sea to collect seashells, to crush, to chew with their coca, which is their sacred plant, which releases the alkaloids. And they're now doing it with tablets, with mapping apps and with smartphones. They're mapping spiritual connections that we can't see because we're not Kogis and they're using technology to do it. Perfect marriage of ancient shamanic wisdom and 21st century technology. So the original maps made by Westerners flying over these rainforests were blank, a few rivers. These maps show that these are rainforests full of wonder and meaning, and these people know them far better than we do. A single map can have a single icon on it, and when you click on the icon, it opens up with a story, a legend, or ecological information, or medicinal history. Our organization, the Amazon Conservation Team now, has taken this methodology and partnered with 35 tribes to map, manage, and improve the protection of 80 million acres
0: of ancestral rainforest. The Amazon is home to the greatest biodiversity on the planet. It also plays a vital role in governing the global climate. Its indigenous people embody a living cultural treasure and a vast trove of knowledge, such as the healing power of plants. That's what first drew Mark Plotkin there. In the early 1970s, he dropped out of college and took a job working in a biology museum at Harvard. A friend encouraged him to take a botany class with the legendary ethnobotanist Dr. Richard Evans Schultes, who worked with Amazonian indigenous peoples to learn about their knowledge of medicinal plants, including the hallucinogenic ayahuasca. Schultes was among the first to sound the alarm about the destruction of the Amazon and its peoples. His work inspired Plotkin to become an ethnobotanist. He studied at Harvard, Yale, and Tufts, then joined the Schultes team at the Harvard Botanical Museum as a research associate. That meant work in the field, where he encountered his first shamans. He spoke with us at a Bioneers conference.
1: Well, I was 19 years old and I was in search of adventure and romance and what could be more adventurous and romantic than running off to the rainforest in search of magical plants. So unlike a lot of my colleagues who've outgrown this, I haven't. I'm still doing it. You know, working with shamans, it's kind of like that little Chinese box puzzle you have as a kid where you open up a little box to find out. What's the surprise inside? And there's another little box. And you open that a couple of times, you get to the smallest possible box, and you open it up, and there's another box inside. That's what working
0: with shamans is like. Plotkin has spent decades in Central and South America as a shaman's apprentice, which is also the title of his best-selling book. He was and is awed by their knowledge as well as their wisdom. He watched one shaman relieve his arthritis by stirring up an anthill with his elbow so the ants would bite him. It worked. One of Plotkin's favorite examples of an unusual source of medicine is a fungus called cordyceps.
1: Cordyceps lives quiescent on the forest floor and waits for insects and arachnids to go past. Once they do that, the fungus attaches itself to the insect exoskeleton. Once it's done that, the fungus burns a hole in the insect exoskeleton. It then inserts itself inside the insect exoskeleton. It then proceeds to devour virtually all of the insect's non-vital organs. Once it's done that, the fungus invades the insect brain, eating only a part of the insect brain, causing the insect to climb to the top of the tallest tree in the forest. Once it does that, the fungus eats the rest of the insect brain, thereby causing the insect exoskeleton to split open, thereby allowing the fungus to release its spores 120 feet above the forest floor. This is why ethnobotanists do not read science fiction. This fungus is a source of cyclosporin. This is an immunosuppressant that makes organ transplant surgery possible. Nature is a deep treasure chest of mysteries, and most of them still remain. I've had the honor and privilege of working with Amazon peoples for over three decades. I'm still learning. I'm here to tell you these people know these for us, and these healing substances far better than we do, and far better than we ever will. And here's a case in point. I was co-teaching a class in conservation and healing with the great trio shaman Amashina a few years ago in the Brazilian Amazon. I developed a terrible case of conjunctivitis, pink eye. And there was a physician taking our course and I asked her if she had any meds and she said, yeah, I've got some pills and some salve. If you take the stuff, you'll be better in four days. I turned to Amashina and said, what do you got? He gave me this cat in the canary smile and said, give me your machete. He walked over to a palm tree just a few meters away, scraped off the bark, peeled it, squeezed out the sap, dripped it into my eyes, and three hours later, my eyes had stopped itching, and the next morning I woke up and my infection was gone. Who would you rather be treated by? Shamanic medicine is based on two pillars as is our own medicine. Our own medicine is based on chemistry, what's in the pills, and technologies, MRI, cat scans, blood work, x-rays. And shamanic medicine is based on chemistry as well, what's in the plants, and the lichens, and the insects. It's also based on magic. Spirituality, the placebo effect, the invisible world, whatever you want to call it, it can't be explained through the prism of Western science and language. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it works when our own medicine falls flat.
0: In his decades of experience, Mark Plotkin says he's witnessed over and over again how shamanic medicine can sometimes cure the diseases the West cannot. Diversity is a virtue in medicine, too.
1: Western medicine is the most sophisticated system of healing ever devised, but it's full of holes. Where's the cure for cancer? Where's the cure for acid reflux? Where's the cure for depression? Where's the cure for PTSD? Western medicine doesn't have it. What kills white people, according to the shamans I work with? Worrying about worry, stress. So clearly these people know something that we don't. Clearly there's something in our spiritual practices which is not fulfilling the people because that's why they're going off to India or that's why they're going off to the Amazon. And the point is not to argue that Indians know everything, that shamans know everything, the Chinese medicine can do everything. This is the warp and woof of, of diversity and different people do things. Well, look, if, if acupuncture didn't work, why are there so many Chinese people? Clearly acupuncture does some things, right? It can't do everything, but neither can Western medicine, neither can shamanic medicine, neither can Ayurvedic medicine. That's why I think it's important to preserve all these traditions big issue in our culture is fertility. We all know women who turn 40 and decide it's time to get pregnant, and it doesn't work. Okay, And we also all know women who gave up, did all the fertility treatments, didn't work, gave up and adopted a child, and then got pregnant and had a baby afterwards. Why is that? The shaman said because they stopped worrying about it. It was stress. And I've seen shamans time and time again... uh, bring success to women who doctors had failed. And in a world increasingly stressed out, in a world increasingly polluted, in a world where more and more people get cancer and all sorts of other things, isn't there a need to honor these traditions and protect them? And if we can do it in an honest and reciprocal way, uh, bring them to the masses. Not to say, let's go to the rainforest and find the cure for... AIDS or bird flu or cancer or acid reflux, and somebody here makes gazillions of dollars, because that's really kind of been the history of the way we look at tropical plants. But let's come up with this new paradigm that everybody at, at Bioneers is talking about of sharing and honoring and working together. That's the way
0: the world should be. Each time a shaman dies, it's like the burning of the ancient library of Alexandria. So ACT has worked with tribal leaders in Suriname to create a Shamans and Apprentices program. Four village-level clinics now provide a training space for apprentices to observe shamans and senior healers practicing their medicine. As scientists and shamans come together for a common purpose, what's in store? More from Mark Plotkin when we return. This is Scientists and Shamans, Changing the Landscape of Power. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. If you love Bioneers Radio, it's free and easy to support us. Just take a moment to post a review on our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find our show online. You'll be helping other people find and enjoy these incredible thinkers and storytellers. And thank you for helping us out. Although the far-reaching conservation goals Mark Plotkin and ACT have accomplished have earned them copious awards and acclaim, he knows how daunting the challenge is. All environmental victories are temporary, as the saying goes. The work is never-ending in the face of extractive industries, corporate bioprospectors depleting and patenting medicinal plant resources, and the rapidly shifting patterns of climate disruption.
1: So the most pristine rainforests of the world are in the Amazon Basin, where I have the privilege to work, and the rainforest has not revealed all of her mysteries. But the wonder drugs of tomorrow are being turned into a wasteland today. With the felling of the forest, uncontrolled mining, the wonder drugs are being turned into smoke, and nothing more, and something else isolated and uncontacted tribes. Isolated and uncontacted tribes hold a mystical role in our imagination. These are the people who know nature best. These people who are truly a part of the ecosystem. These are the people that embody the secrets of the rainforest and know it far better than any one of us ever will. Unfortunately, these people are under threat. This is the most threatened species in the Amazon rainforest, isolated uncontacted people, surrounded on all sides by loggers and miners and uh, narco-traffickers. These are Piro who stumbled out of the jungle seeking help because they were being shot at and their malocas were being burned. This is a maroon from Suriname. These are descendants of escaped slaves who got off the slave ships and said, Equatorial Rainforest, see you white boys later. And they ran off in the interior where these warriors maintain independent lifestyles to the current day. And we've sent in our indigenous cartographers to teach the Maroons how to preserve their oral history, their culture, and their rainforests as well. And we've done this now throughout South America so that the Indians are working with the Maroons, the other Afro-Americans, the campesinos, the peasants, the caboclos, the Brazilian peasants, and the governments as well. Good conservation is about building alliances and bridges and bringing people together to make a better common tomorrow.
0: Mark Plotkin's biocultural conservation vision works on the ground. The successes are real. But in the face of the scale and speed of destruction, he believes we need to aim high.
1: When I started the Amazon conservation team with my partner Liliana Madrigal 20 years ago, uh, about 8% of the Amazon was in national parks. About 25% was indigenous reserves. Conservations didn't care about Indian reserves. They cut down trees, they hunt monkeys. Now they realize that these indigenous lands are better protected because these people will lay down their life to protect it. They have poison-tipped arrows, they have shotguns. So now you have 25% in national parks, which by and large are not protected particularly well. You have indigenous lands, which are protected typically quite well. You have Indians who now want to protect the national parks because that's our next-door neighbors, and they don't want the gold miners or the gun runners in there. That's half the Amazon if you put those together and you manage it correctly. So, yeah, it's a great goal. But if your goal is let's protect half the Amazon or not, you know, you're shooting for the stars here. You know, I say let's protect it all and settle for 75%. Or let's shoot for 75 and protect 50%. Instead of having this grand goal and failing at the village level, you go to most of these villages, you don't see any conservation organizations. Work at the grassroots level may sound sexy and romantic, but it's hard. It's hot. There's always personalities. There's always politics. There's always gold miners. There's always politicians. There's always loggers. You know, one of the great failings of the environmental world is you win a battle and you think you've won the war and you go home. You set up a national park and you go home. Like, dudes, you set up a national park, there's a chainsaw sale in the nearest town because they think it's a tragedy of the commons. Now it doesn't belong to anybody. Nobody will protect it. So when you win the battle, you need to gird your loins for the next battle because it never ends. And unless you're committed for the long
0: term, you're just whistling in the dark. For Mark Plotkin, it comes down to changing the landscape of power and there are proven strategic initiatives that don't require gobs of money or rewriting lots of laws.
1: So let me conclude on a note of hope. We're building guard posts to keep the outside world at bay. No miners, no loggers, no missionaries. We're manning that post with the Colombian National Park Service and local indigenous peoples. The Witoto tribe to the south of Chiribiketi are mapping their lands using our methodology to keep the outsiders out and protect their isolated and uncontacted brothers and sisters. And we've created an indigenous park art force to protect these rainforests, these plants, these animals, these lichens, these healing magical mysteries. So in conclusion, the question is, what's the fate of these people? Shamans say it's all interconnected. I believe, and I know I'm not the only one here who believes this, that it's all interconnected. Their fate is our fate. We're pioneers. That's better than pioneers because we don't leave environmental destruction and cultural genocide in our wake. So, as pioneers, let's blaze a trail to a world in which indigenous peoples map, manage, and protect their lands. Let's blaze a trail to a world in which climate changes for the better, not the worse. And let's blaze a trail to a world where these shamans live in luxuriant forests and cure themselves and us with their magical plants, their hallucinogenic lichens, and their sacred frogs. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Onward.
0: Diversity also applies to motives. Whether you fight to conserve the Amazon and its indigenous peoples for its remarkable medicines, or for the profound value of traditional indigenous knowledge, or for the cultural survival of these living cultural treasures, or for the global climate, or because nature has intrinsic value, but because life is sacred. Mark Plotkin, on the path with kindred spirits blazing trails to save the land and shooting for the stars. Shamans and scientists, changing the landscape of power. You can see and hear more from Mark Plotkin and explore more Bioneers radio programs, podcasts, and videos online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ossibel, Written by Kenny Ossibel. Senior Producer and Station Relations, Stephanie Welch. Host and Consulting Producer, Neil Harvey. Program Engineer, Emily Harris. Plotkin Interview by Jeff Westman. Our theme music is co-written by the Baca Forest People of Cameroon and Baca Beyond from the album East to West. All royalties from Baca compositions and performances go to the Baca Forest People through the charity Global Music Exchange. Find out more at globalmusicexchange.org. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at SoundsTrue.com and Buddha Lounge at records.com. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0117. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley's pasture-raised organic dairy products, bringing the good from our family farmers to your table at organicvalley.coop and by the generous support of listeners like you.